This is Swordplay, and I'm Nick Perez. Alex, a baby Jesus <clears throat> statue was stolen from a Catholic church and has mysteriously returned after eight decades. Eight decades? Wow. You know, Nick, I don't know why they even need a statue anymore. They have new LED, baby Jesus, so you could leave baby Jesus plugged in all year round. It's Very energy inefficient. Absolutely. It's time to upgrade. Go LED, baby. Plus, Jeez, it's brighter. Jesus. And he becomes the light of the world. See, I think they should have just let whoever returned to keep the statue. And this is Swordplay. Welcome, everybody. And on this episode of Swordplay, the book of Second John. We are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ and host of the Live from the Pulpit podcast. And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, be sure to check out our podcast page at swordplay.cast.rocks. That's swordplay.cast.rocks. You can listen to this podcast on any web browser. And be sure to like us on the iTunes page. And also, we're now on Google Play. So if you know somebody who still uses a Zune, then you can point them in the direction of Google Play. Zune. <laughs> they lost the mp3 battle um <clears throat> and there so. goes our zoom sponsorship anyway uh <clears throat> well let's uh let's just say to our audience that uh, if you have not yet read second john grab your bible turn to second john read it it'll take uh at a most uh, five minutes to read and then um read it again make sure it's firmly in your mind and then come back to this episode and hit play at the 205 mark because that's where we're getting started with our uh, study in this episode. Um, so let's go ahead and start. We're only yeah. talking about 13 verses here, but for me, what is interesting about Second John is that it's not what it says, but what it doesn't say, right? There's so many questions that this evokes. I have more questions than there are verses. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> Yeah, um, and maybe that's part of the the brevity thing is is when it is just so brief. It's one of these New Testament postcards that we've been looking at in the last few episodes, and even though it's short, like the others we've looked at, it's very dense. And um, we might as well get started with the first question of okay, who wrote it? Who's the author? Who wrote Second John? Any ideas, Alex? Well, yeah, I mean it says right there the elder wrote it, so. I don't see what else is uh, to be known here. All right, moving on. Uh, no, there's, of course, <laughs> there are those who want to argue about, okay, who is the elder? And <clears throat> although he's unnamed, there is a pretty rich tradition concerning this being uh, an epistle uh, from the apostle John. Uh, what say you? Yeah, I think the earliest source we have on this would be uh, Irenaeus, and he quotes from First and Second John. Some people think that he may have considered First and Second John to be part of the same letter or part of the same package to the same group of people. Anyway, he quotes from it, and he attributes it to the Apostle John. And so, if I'm not mistaken, I think Irenaeus is from like the first half of the second century, right? Like around the 130 AD mark. Is that that right? sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. 
So he's going to be our earliest source for letting us know what early Christians thought about this letter and who it was written by. Although some later uh, church writers like, uh, I can't remember if it was Origen or Eusebius, you might have to correct me here, who thought that it was possible that there were two Johns here, that you have the Apostle John, but then you have John the Elder, and John the Elder is a different person, and it's John the Elder who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, do you remember who said that? I don't remember, but that that's one of the one of the theories, is that there's this other 2nd John who wrote 2nd John, and, and maybe 3rd John as well. Um, but... Uh, no, I'm I'm pretty well persuaded. This is the Apostle John. Um, tradition upholds that he was a bishop, an elder uh, in the Lord's Church uh, in Ephesus, and so right. um, yeah, John the Apostle. He just refers to himself as the elder, but he's writing to the elect lady and also to her children. Um, Alex, who's who is this elect lady, and who are her children? You know, that's a good question. I think the key goes with the last verse of the letter as well. So the first verse says, to the chosen lady and her children. Uh, and the last verse says, the children of your chosen sister greet you. So I've always taken this to mean that the children here is biblical language for Christians, for converts. You look back at our first episode on Philemon, and we saw that Paul says he has begotten uh, Onesimus as his child in prison, which is like, well, did he actually have a child in prison, or is this a convert to Christianity? Of course, it's a convert to Christianity. So we look at this, and even if you go to Revelation, it talks about the so-called prophetess Jezebel, and how one of the warnings for her, because she doesn't want to repent, is that her and her children are going to be thrown on a bed of sickness and uh, killed with pestilence. And so that's always taken to mean those who have fallen for the deception and participated in sexual immorality and idolatry with this so-called prophetess Jezebel. So that's in Revelation chapter 2 in the message to Thyatira, again written by the Apostle John. So I, I take it to mean it's this way of talking about Christians and churches uh, and congregations. What do you think, Nick? No, that makes sense. Um, elect lady, elect sister, those seem to be uh, congregations of the Lord's people. Um, and and so John is writing to this specific church. The children would be the individual members of the church. I Again, that's that's the way I take it. But of course, that bleeds over into another question why why all this code language right why not just say the church and to the members of this church um what's going on there with the code language well that's that's exactly what i want to know nick the first and second john sometimes just have me spinning around in circles just so frustrated uh, why doesn't he just say church <laughs> you know <laughs> well every time he uses the word truth right truth is the most common word in this letter i think it's used five times love is used four times commandment is used four times but when you read john it's like he's using these words in different ways and so 
it's to me it it almost seems circular from time to time i just have to take a step back and just remember what the bigger message of the letter is but i don't know do you ever feel like that reading first and second john like you're missing out on some sort of subtext or or some sort of decipher that you just don't have <laughs> uh yeah um but and and of course for me <clears throat> probably for you too my mind keeps coming back to the fact that these people who received this epistle uh, or any epistle, any writing of the New Testament, they would have um, picked up on it and understood it when they received it. We're trying to catch up 2,000 years later. Um, I, When it comes to this kind of code language, elect lady, elect sister, her children, all that, um, I'm, I see here kind of this personification of the... Uh, the, the bride of Christ, right? And so lady here is actually the feminine form of the word Lord. And she is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ that reigns with him in the heavenly realms. And so um, children of that holy union between Christ and his bride are are those members of the Lord's church who have been birthed by the new birth. Here's some other language from a different Johannine source. Um, they've been birthed by the new birth or born from above. And and so I can get there, but yeah, I can understand why it, it, it's kind of frustrating. It's like, well, just just say the church, but maybe John, maybe John was a poet. Maybe he had kind of that genius type temperament or personality or something. And and uh, he wanted to address the church in that way. Well, and I can see why maybe people would put First and Second John together as maybe one unit, um, perhaps second occasion, separate occasions, or perhaps the same occasion, but just separate groups. I don't know. Um, when you look at Third John, I mean, Third John has people's names in it, like he talks about Diotrephes and Gaius, and uh, in Revelation it, it mentions Antipas, and the Apostle John right. names himself. Uh, the Gospel of John, of course, has all the names in there of the apostles and disciples and Jesus and people he ran into. It's only First and Second John where you don't have anybody's name, you don't have the author naming himself, and you have this circular reusing, recycling of key words that just just around the time you think you've got it figured out and defined by its context he uses it again in a different way and you're like well that doesn't fit <laughs> so, <laughs> so i i found it to be a pretty challenging letter to be honest with you first and second john have always been challenging to me speaking of truth it is a very popular word in this brief little epistle in fact in the first four verses when it shows up those five times um, how do we define truth or the truth in some cases it has that definite article uh alex what What's your take on John's use of truth? You know, this is a tough one. So there's the truth that we want to, you know, that we have a tendency to want to define as being like the things that we know to be true, right? But then we run into trouble because we find other believers in Christ who have a different set of criteria for what they call the truth. And so is that what it's supposed to be? Is it supposed to be this shifting, moldable, uh, set of teachings. I don't know. I kind of lean away from that. However, truth by John seems to also be used uh, as sort of a personification of Jesus himself. You know, he is the truth. 
And so I wonder if we have more of that going on, more of this person personality side of how he's using truth and using that as sort of a name for Jesus. Uh, but that doesn't always fit every context. I mean, even in chapter or in verse three, it says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Right. So it can't be truth being Jesus because they just mentioned Jesus. So I don't know what's going on with there within truth, in truth, and love. Uh, is there anything going on in the original language, Nick? Uh, it's possible, and I knew this question was coming, so yet again I pulled out my Greek apparatus. And um, the, the big word for it is hendiadis. And all that means is you come across two nouns that don't have definite articles, and they're connected by the conjunction and. And so you see it here uh, in, in verse uh, 3, as you said, Alex, in truth and love. What ends up happening is... Typically, that second word acts as an adjective, a descriptive word for the first. And so what it could shake out to be is, if this is a hendiadis, is uh, in lovely truth. And we don't talk that way typically, um, although we could refer to a lovely day, and that might... Uh, but we, we wouldn't say uh, day and love, right? So this is just... It was, it was a... Uh, a, a way in which they spoke, and it could be here. There are other places where it shows up in uh, Johannine literature, but um, uh, it could be in lovely truth, and the truth is lovely. It's a beautiful thing, um, especially if if we're referring to. It may not be referred. Uh, he may not be referring to Jesus here, but if it is referring to Jesus, Jesus is the most beautiful thing ever. But. Um, you know, what it boils down to, especially with this truth business, uh, whether it's talking about the person of Christ who is the truth, or it's talking about uh, a body of teaching that is true, the bottom line is there's this contrast that is carried through this letter between those who possess the truth and those who possess falsehood. And, and right from the beginning, John draws this sharp contrast between the possessors of truth and the possessors of falsehood. And so he's saying to the church, look, you have the truth. Uh, you have Christ. You have all the truth that you can need. And, and that is, is a beautiful thing. Sure. Um, Nick, so, is, is there yeah. a possibility... Uh, that instead of it being lovely truth, as in like sort of a aesthetic, like sort of beauty, um, that it could be describing like the way in which truth is presented, as in like it's a loving truth. Or, or I'm thinking of Ephesians where it says, "Speak the truth in love." You right. know, is it kind of that idea? It could be. It, okay. Yeah, I I don't have a problem with that either. So, um, but yeah, how about this business of the truth? abides in us and will be with us forever Any yeah thoughts on that well the part that was tricking me was the part where it says it will be with us uh forever and it's just like so what what kind of future framework 
does the author have in mind here? I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Nick? The abides in us is a present tense thing, and truth is abiding in the church. And so we have it presently. The future tense will be with us forever, I believe, as John, speaking somewhat prophetically, to say, look, truth, truth is permanent. Truth is never going away. Uh, the word is eternal. Even Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will no, not never pass away. Bad English, good Greek. But that's the nature of truth is, is it is permanent. And these falsehoods which are popping up, you know, the Gnosticism and stuff, which we'll dig into here in a minute, that stuff, it's going to go by the wayside. But truth, the truth, that's never going out of business. What about verse 3 where it says grace mercy and peace will be with us sort of to me that threw me off too because it places it in the future and yet there are other letters like when i'm looking at paul's letters that talk about grace mercy and peace being with them as in like a present blessing that he introduces with Uh, do you have any thoughts on that distinction there i think it's i think it's similar to truth that just like truth isn't going out of business, grace, mercy, and peace aren't going out of business. Grace covers our sins, mercy uh, relieves us of our misery, and as a result, peace flows from that. And so just as truth remains and is never going away, the same thing can be said about grace, mercy, and peace. That's how I read that. Sure, sure. No, I think that makes sense. And again, it's a short letter, and you never know what what exactly is the subtext here but we're going to try to dig that up with uh, the occasion and what's going on here and um, exactly why did John write this letter so as we continue to to dig in John warns them about these deceivers having gone out right and he says many deceivers have gone out to the world those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh this is the deceiver and the antichrist So there are two questions I have here, Nick. First is, how do many deceivers all of a sudden become the deceiver in the same verse? And also, what is the big deal about Jesus coming in the flesh? So which one of those do you want to tackle? Ooh, let's, um, let's deal with... I want to tackle Jesus coming in the flesh because, and and it, these guys who were coming on the scene were speaking a different word than the apostolic college was about Jesus, and it wasn't it wasn't a minor thing. Okay, that's that's something that needs to be said right from the beginning because how this text traditionally gets used especially verse 9 about the teaching of christ is if someone disagrees with me on any particular point of doctrine no matter how small or trivial it may be die heretic all right um and emo phillips has a great bit about this the comedian um just search emo phillips die heretic and and, and, and that's how this text has traditionally been used, is as a bludgeon to get you to agree with me. And if you don't, I'm going to write you up and submit it to one of our Brotherhood papers that has a bit more, uh, has a bit of a contentious bend to it. 
that's not what John is talking about when he's talking about these deceivers uh, and these antichrists. Um, he's also not talking about uh, people yet in the future for him. He's talking about people who are right there in the midst of that particular contemporary context who are who are saying a different word about the person and the nature of Christ. And that's a big deal because when you mess with the nature of Christ, you mess, you mess with a very core element of the gospel message. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, he could not die on the cross. If he, and this, this is John speaking to the seeds of the docetic heresy. Docetic, doceticism said Jesus only seemed to have a body. He didn't leave footprints in the sands on the seashores of Galilee. Um, and when he died on the cross, he only seemed, it only seemed like, it only appeared to be that he died on the cross. And John says, not so fast. Jesus did come in the flesh, and this echoes back to the prequel, 1 John, where he says, look, we touched him, we beheld him, we saw him, uh, and in him was life. So to mess with the person and the nature of Christ was a very serious thing. Jesus came from heaven to earth to die, and if he couldn't die because he didn't have a real body of flesh, then he couldn't die for our sins. If he didn't die for our sins, there's no blood atonement. Without blood, there's no forgiveness. So that's a very serious thing, and I believe why John is so harsh about this, or at least we read it maybe as, a, as kind of harsh in tone, but in reality, he's... It's deadly serious about this stuff. Um, so that's this coming in the flesh business, and it's related to the deceivers who are the deceiver in Antichrist, which you say are... Well, let's, uh, let, me, let me throw something back at you real quick, make sure okay. I hear you, right? So when you say, okay, people come in, they're saying Jesus did not come in the flesh, then that implies that he didn't have a deathly uh, a bodily death right and so that puts uh, undermines the uh, the entire atonement aspect right the dying for our sins that jesus came to accomplish um and then i also kind of heard you brought in some of this idea of mentioned in first john chapter one the first three verses where john is saying we saw him we touched him we were with him and that kind of goes into the, okay, if he wasn't somebody that we saw and touched and was with, if he was just a vision or an, some sort of ghostly uh, you know, figure, phantom, shadowy guy, then that also undermines the apostles' testimony, doesn't it? It undermines the apostles' authority as the deliverers of truth. Um, so is that kind of what you're going at right there? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's the what these deceivers are doing is they're denying the incarnation flat out. Um, I might even take it one step further, uh, though, Nick. So they're denying the incarnation flat out. But think about this: if Jesus didn't die in the flesh, then what does that mean about his resurrection? No bodily resurrection. That's right. That's right. And wasn't that the problem Paul had to address? to the Corinthians in chapter 15 about some people saying that there is no resurrection. You think there could be a connection here? Oh, absolutely. No, that's right on the money. Yeah, so really the the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so if you take away a bodily Jesus, then you don't have a bodily resurrection, which takes away the hope of the Christian, which is the resurrection. So uh, I wonder if ultimately this trail leads up to that key thing, the idea that we're going to be resurrected from the dead and how Jesus not coming in the body completely undermines that, swipes the authority right out from underneath the apostles and places it in the hands of these deceivers. Now, what do you think when it says these deceivers have gone out into the world, but then all of a sudden at the end it says, but this is the singular deceiver and the antichrist? Well, how, my English standard reads this way. It says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so that's kind of how that gets worked through um, in this translation. The many deceivers who don't confess the coming of Christ in the flesh, um, that's how the many become the one. Such a one who does this, who denies, doesn't confess that Jesus came in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist and um, so that's how that gets worked out let's just deal with because I know we've got our tough text coming up in a minute so let's just deal with the deceiver um, aspect of this who ultimately is the primary the prime deceiver of all human history Satan and right. so who, who would it be the serpent of old exactly who would be the deceiver behind hmm. these deceivers Right. Um, it, it would it would be uh, the one who's been deceiving since the beginning. It would be uh, uh, Satan himself. When who, he lies, when, he speaks his native tongue. You read my mind, Yahtzee. So <laughs> <laughs> now there's an interesting connection here, though, Nick. So when it talks about we've received uh, this commandment that we've had from the beginning, um, he mentions that in verses five and six. That's also a big thing in First John as well. Now, the word beginning in the original language is RK, and sometimes RK means beginning as in like the source or the authority from which something comes, but sometimes RK is talking about an actual like person who holds a specific like spiritual hierarchy in the heavenly places. And so where am I getting that from, right? That sounds kind of crazy, but it's in Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, I believe it's verses uh, 15 and 16, it talks about, um, let me see here, Jesus is the, uh, verse 15, the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers uh, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so... You start digging into the original language there, the thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Rulers there is uh, the word RK, and so it's using RK as a, as a person who holds, a created being who holds some sort of hierarchical position in the heavenly realms. So if that's the case, like let, let's say John is using the beginning as sort of a reference to Jesus holding this heavenly place's authority uh, doesn't that put that in contrast, sort of brings in the cosmic war here between uh, Jesus and Satan, the deceiver? Am I making a connection here? Does this make sense at all? No, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, and yeah, if John's using uh, RK in that particular way, then then certainly there'd be uh, a sharp contrast between 
Christ and uh, this other malevolent power uh, in in the universe. So I think it even and let's let's say these these are the seeds of Gnosticism, right? Let's say Gnosticism isn't full blown yet, and let's say these are the seeds that turn into Gnosticism later on. Uh, in Gnosticism, you're going to get language like this. You're going to get people talking about the demiurge and archons, and they're going to bring in some of that language that you see Paul using in the New Testament, but of course they're going to redefine it, and they're going to put a new narrative around it. And so this could be just the beginning of the spinning and uh, webbing of lies that the deceiver, Satan, will continue to roll with as the centuries pass on. And I think that brings us to our tough text for today. Tough text. Who is the Antichrist? (laughs) He's mentioned here, and yeah, who's the Antichrist? Want to take a stab at it first? Uh, Boy, you know, there are so many presuppositions that go into this answer, uh, (laughs) depending on where you're coming from, right? So, Oh, yeah. For me, I think the Antichrist is as simple as anybody who is against Christ. And yet, that's not always easy to define. You got these guys who, they're teaching that Christ doesn't come in the flesh. But if they're being successful in their deception, then there's got to be something believable about it. There's got to be something that sounds good about it. Otherwise, they wouldn't convince anyone or convert anyone. And so, to me, I think... Antichrist can be tightly knit to the same uh, picture that we have for a false teacher. And when I say false teacher, I don't mean somebody who teaches something that is false and so, or somebody who teaches uh, something that you disagree with. When I say false teacher, I mean somebody who really does bear bad fruit. I'm thinking about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit, a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. And why I think that plays in Second John is uh, in verse 11 where it talks about don't greeting these guys, uh, don't, don't help them. It says, for the one who gives them a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And so I think evil deeds are not the same thing as incorrect teachings. So what I think is that when you paint a picture of a false teacher, you look at Jude, you look at Second Peter, you look at Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and then you look at these guys in Second John, I think a false teacher and an antichrist is somebody who uses the name of Christ as a facade, as a uh, pretense to carry out evil deeds, evil actions, sexual immorality, scamming people out of their money, trying to control and manipulate people. That's what I would label as an antichrist, and I could see how many of them would be there in their day and how many of them would be here today in our day as well. Well, it sounds to me like you need to brush up on your left behind (laughs) Tim LaHaye stuff. Um, Yeah, no, you're right on the money. This, this was something that was happening even as John was putting pen to parchment. It wasn't something yet future 2,000 years off. He's not anticipating some shadowy political figure who rises up out of a reborn European Union, Tim LaHaye and his ilk notwithstanding. He's talking about people, and again, as I said earlier, it's not even someone that you disagree with or differ with on some particular point of 
scripture. Um, this isn't this isn't someone that John said Sibboleth and they said Shibboleth. This is <laughs> this is very serious stuff that strikes right at the nature of Christ, and as a result, just as you said, that kind of bad tree is going to bear bad fruit. You, the, the the roots are rotten. They they start off from the wrong place with Jesus altogether, and in fact the roots that they have go right down into the the evil one that's where it has its origin its nexus is there so no that's yeah i in a nutshell that's the antichrist yeah and i i i mean it's the antichrist is the wolf in sheep's clothing you know it's not the it's not the sincere follower or teacher who is misunderstood it's the guy who is literally devouring the sheep. I mean, he's going to stand before Jesus, bold and brazen on the day of judgment, and he's going to say, Lord, I did a lot of good things for you. And Jesus is going to tell that wolf, I see my sheep's blood dripping from your fangs. I know who you are. I know what you truly practice. What you truly practice is lawlessness, and so now you're going to depart because I never knew you. So let that be a warning for those who are real deceivers, not those who are sincerely wrong, but those who are intentionally, with planning, with purpose, using the church, using Christians, and using the name of Christ in order to open a door to accomplish their evil deeds. Evil deeds being the dark stuff that you know are wrong. Speaking of warnings, there is a warning here for Christians in verse 8 that's related to this, where John says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Um, Alex, does that seem to imply, that, that phrase there, full reward, does that imply degrees of reward? You know, Nick, uh, I don't know if we'll agree on this or not, but... Let's find out. I, okay, I would. This is how you know this isn't scripted, right? So, I I would come down on the side of leaning towards yes, it does imply degrees of reward. That the gift of Christ, that which you get by faith, is eternal life. But I believe that there is reward given based on what you do with your gift. Now that you've been saved, now that you've been added to the body of Christ, what are you going to do with what He has given you? And so I think in that sense, you have the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins, but then you also have reward based on what you do with that. You know, I wrote my commentary on Second John years ago. I don't know how long ago. And I look back over what I wrote, especially related to this, winning a full reward. I know where I got it from, right? It's from the parable Jesus tells about the laborers that go out into the vineyard, and some start early in the morning, some some start later in the morning, some start early afternoon, some start toward the evening time, but they all get the same reward. I know that's where I got it from. But in the years since I wrote about this, I'm I'm coming to the conclusion that just as there seems to be degrees of punishment, and I think there's a case to be made for that, right? that there are also degrees of reward. That, um, you know, someone, someone who did a lot of good, who made a lot of sacrifices, um, who went 
all over the world in order to preach the gospel, probably they're probably going to get something better than someone else who didn't make as many sacrifices, uh, didn't uh, didn't um, do as much kingdom work. Still Christian, still faithful to the Lord, but just it seems like yeah, that full reward does seem to imply that there would be a partial reward. Um, so, I think so. I mean, I'm still spinning out on it. That's where I'm at right now. Sure, sure. And it's a tough question, and it drags you into uh, soteriology, right? Doctrine of uh, salvation. It, it drags right. you into es- eschatology. You know, what's what's it going to be like when Jesus comes back after the judgment, leading up to and afterwards? And so it it brings these things into the question and. And so where I'm at with it, I see God as a righteous judge. I see that he has revealed to us every now and then a little image, a little scenery of his divine courtroom, if you will, and that he takes everything into account. And so to me, it's it's not just uh, one or the other, uh, heaven or hell. Uh, I'm not jumping on board on purgatory or anything like that, but I'm just saying that I think there are degrees of reward and degrees of punishment and that the righteous judge knows how to take every bit of information available and sort it out and make a righteous judgment and that there's the free gift of eternal life but there's reward to me there's the ultimate punishment of annihilation but like you said there could be a case for lesser punishments so that's where i'm at Let's talk a little bit about um, some modern application. What what can we carry across the bridge of time today? Um, let's start just generally. Anything in this book that, that you want to carry across the bridge generally? Um, I don't know. I think just the way in which John communicates with him, I'm thinking about how he says, really, that this was a short letter. I got more things I want to talk about, but... I just I'm gonna keep it brief. I'm not gonna waste paper and ink on it. I'm gonna come see you face to face, so that your joy may be made full. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that, Nick? Yeah, um, we live in a technologically advanced culture. Certainly, a bit more advanced than they are. And he talks about wanting to talk face to face with them. And you know, one of the things that that um, that we kind of take for granted is just how connected we are, and yet I think studies are showing that we've never been more disconnected from each other. Sure. And and that's become that's because we're we're a, a, a text and Snapchat and Twitter and email kind of people, as opposed to what John talks about here about being. Um, he wants to talk to them face to face. John's written something which is vitally important to the church then and now uh, in several ways. But there's something about pen and ink that he just he can't convey it like he could in a face to face communication. I tell you what, Nick, if it weren't for emojis, I would be un- misunderstood in every text message that I send. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, those emojis save our lives. I know. If we were face-to-face, I could wink at you and stick my tongue out, and you would know what I'm saying, but 
I need my emoji to do it for me in the text message. Well, and then and then I'd have the the smirk one where I'm looking off to the side. Um, anyway, look, um, how about how about here's here's another application point. Um, John's talked a lot about the danger associated with deceivers, antichrists, and and such like that, who oppose Christ. And I do believe, and I think you touched on it earlier, there are those individuals, and perhaps even entire religious organizations, they deny vital aspects of Christ, and at the same time, they are people who it seems like they are deliberately misleading people down a certain pathway in order to exploit them for a particular gain, whether that is financial gain or, um, you know, popularity-type gain. Um, so there, I think there are still those people, those individuals that are out there and those organizations that are out there who still, they're still opposed to the true nature of Christ, and they're still deceivers of people. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's a it's a fine line. It's it takes a lot of discernment to sort through this because you, you got people who they're not going to come out and tell you who they are or why they're really doing what they're doing. And so, leaders and teachers they're supposed to be held to a higher standard. Uh, James talks talks about that in the book of James about not wanting many of you to be teachers because you're going to be judged more strictly. I think that's both here and in the judgment. And so. Yeah, when, when these leaders come out and they're caught, you know, stealing money, embezzling funds, when they're caught having adulteries, committing sexual immorality all over the place, uh, when they're caught manipulating and um, abusing people and controlling their lives, uh, this, this kind of thing cannot be uh, tolerated. That is uh, a good example of, yeah, modern-day teachers, preachers, prophets, evangelists, whatever you want to call them, doing things uh, in order to accomplish evil deeds. Yet, on the other hand, like you said, there are pl places out there, so I'm thinking about the Jehovah's Witness knocking at my door, right? So, uh, the Jehovah's Witness has a different perspective on the Trinity than I do. They they believe Jesus is a created being, that he's the, the Son of God, but that he is the first creation of God that then created everything else. Well, I mean, that's that's in pretty stark contrast to what I would believe about Jesus being God and, and the way I see the Gospel of John and how John talks about Jesus. Um, and yet, are they intentionally trying to deceive people so that they can accomplish evil deeds? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's worth sitting down and having a conversation about. What do you think? No, I, I think that makes Especially, you know, I've, I've had people bring... Um, verse 10 to me, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And they've kind of used that, and verse 11 as well, about participating in the wicked works. They've kind of used that as uh, a reason even to be, like, um, to be harsh and, and mean to, to these people, slamming the door in their face and stuff like that. And um, I don't think that's necessarily what John had in mind no. when he's talking about you know don't receive them into your house or, or literally in don't bring this is an in-house thing this is this is about in in the household of God that's that's how I'm reading this not not your personal house you know when they come knocking on your door or something like that 
I think it's don't this is don't offer them an official welcome into the church. You, you protect, you guard the church. Yeah, I, I can see it uh, definitely both ways. I probably lean more toward what you're saying, Nick, about uh, you don't want a congregation of the Lord's Church being seen as endorsing um, a group of people who are teaching something that detrimentally uh, undermines the gospel, right? And yet you're sitting there in a congregation and you're hearing this letter being read to you. Um, I could see how then you would take that home and and then up on your own start applying it to your, your personal home and the hospitality you show to, to people who say they're believers, but they have this uh, detrimental uh, doctrine that undermines the gospel. And so that's why I sort of bring in the aspect of, listen, um, you really need to look at the deeds and that deeds are not the same thing as teaching. So I guess that's where I keep going back to is that deeds are not the same thing as teaching. And so you need to look at what people do and be willing to have a conversation with what people think and teach. Hey, do you think this could apply to the... Uh... I sent you a thing about the the guy who started a crack church, a crack house <laughs> church. <laughs> you think this could apply to him too? Uh, you know, I really don't have any words for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know, it's a brief letter. It's a short little postcard. It's very dense. We only scratched the surface of it, but um, you know, there, even though it's even though it's short, it's dense. There's a lot in there. I agree, and I think uh, we gave our listeners plenty of things to, to think about and to, to contemplate. As always, we don't have all the answers, but we sure like to uh, take the Word of God and conversate and throw things uh, off, bounce things off of each other and, and see what we get. That's why we call it swordplay. That's right. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.